episode two of The Flying Irishman, and I'm Jarlath Regan, your host and pilot through this season's journey into the lives of the Irish people behind aviation. Hand on heart, the diversity of the characters and stories you're going to hear in this season of the show is the thing that stood out to me when I eventually came to pulling this whole series together. If episode one was the story of Deck Ryan, the quiet man of Irish aviation, who couldn't quite understand why his dad wanted to be in the airline business in the first place, Alan Joyce is not that person. Ever since he took control as CEO of Qantas in 2003, he became a lightning rod for attention and controversy. And at that time, a collection of factors had coincided to result in record losses for the company, 2.84 billion Australian dollars to be exact. He chose to, among other things, ground the fleet and lay off 5,000 people and get to work on reviving a company that looked to everyone else to be dead in the water. And that is precisely what he did, taking them from this bleak outlook to a 1.8 billion profit in a very short period of time. He's recognised as one of the best examples of Irish business excellence abroad. And yet, by his own admission, when he took his first job with Aer Lingus, he'd never been next or near an airplane. You know, the headline for you is you're the man responsible for turning Qantas around from a 1 billion plus loss uh, to 2 billion in the black. And the cost cutting you put in place made you one of the most unpopular men in Australia for a time. And yet you stared it down, went through the fire and you've credited your parents for that sort of self-belief that took you through that. What sort of parents were these? Because that's an incredible amount of self-belief, let's face it. Yeah, I think, well, both my parents were from very working class backgrounds. Uh, my dad uh, grew up in the Liberties on Bru- uh, uh, Bright Street and Nicholas Street. And he had to leave school when he was 12 because um, he just really had to get out and work. And my mother, uh, similarly, she was from Ballyfermid. She, uh, she left when she was 12. She had TB, was in hospital for a couple of years and then came out and had to mind her brothers and sisters while her mother and father were working. So they, they didn't have, or didn't finish secondary education and they were pretty, uh, pretty invested in their four kids mm-hmm. and very, very focused on education as a great leveler. And I think their determination of doing multiple jobs, their determination of making sure we all got through secondary tertiary education and had the opportunities that they didn't have really instilled a work ethic and a determination. That, and they still today would be right rating us like two heroes for what they, uh, all the opportunities they gave all four of us, their kids. Well, you know, that's, that's one thing, right? I mean, work ethic is one thing, but I guess my first question relates to the ability to be unpopular. You know, you are quoted as saying it's not a popularity contest being a CEO of a company like this. And if that's what you think it is, then you should get out of the job. But like, you know, your parents can instill a work ethic, but that ability to to not care if people like you is something that's kind of not very Irish in many ways. I find myself doing it all the time. People using the hope that, oh, I hope nobody minds me doing this. Was that something that you had early on? Like, who gave you that kind of fuck it attitude? I'm going to do it. 
Oh, well, I think there's, you, you look at Irish business and there's a lot of people that are very friendly to meet and very Irish and, and like dealing with people, like engaging with people, but they're very determined when it comes to their objectives, what they need to do and what, what, what they need to, uh, and what they need to deliver on. And when you look at, you know, the determination I've had, it really does focus on things like the, the amazing 100 year history of Qantas and the determination that it's going to survive for another 100 years and making all the tough decisions that, that gives it that opportunity. And you know, the, the stories I think were again from my parents, I suppose through, through my career and my life, you've got times where you've seen people standing up, um, maybe a bit unpopular. But doing the right thing. I was the story that sticks in my mind about my mother when I was eight or nine. She, like a good Irish mother, on a Friday would go and get fish and chips, and mm -hmm. she got from the lake, the, the fishmonger up the road. She got some fish, fish, but she had the flu, and she didn't smell that the fish was off. And when she served it up to us, it was very clearly off. But we said it, and she went up to the fishmonger, stood outside the shop for that night and the following day. And the only time that I could get her to come back. I went up and said, Matt, he was protesting. He wouldn't give the money back and he wanted a refund. And I came up to her and said, Matt, you, you need to come down. We're starving. Because uh, I was nine. I think my brother was eight and then it was six and, and, and four. But that determination, that, that unwavering, making sure that nobody screwed you and making sure you fall for your rights. That's what my mother always had. And she demonstrated before from a young age and had that determination. And that's probably the role model that you grew up with. My father was a lot quieter. You know, we were caught smoking when we were six years of age. Uh, six? In the back. Yeah, I was six. <laughs> my brother was five. We saved our pocket money. And my mother was again this, you know, determined woman. And she got away until my father got home uh, to, to, uh, to discipline us. And my father only got upset when he worked for Benson and Hedges and he found out that we were smoking uh, majors <laughs> instead of Benson and Hedges. <laughs> and that's the only time I've ever seen him get upset. He said, at least you could support me in, our, in my job. And so I got, to, I got to understand brands from an early age at six years of age. You said that your mother was, uh, in another interview, you listed her as the uh, pound for pound best fighter in Dublin at the time. Um, <laughs> I, I know what that feels like and I had a similar mother that way and I think the Irish mammy is kind of, uh, it's now a kind of uh, an iconic figure in Irish history is kind of carving these uh, characters and uh, historical figures that we know and it's kind of been given its appreciation. But like outside of that, growing up in Tala at that time, I mean, Right now, we're kind of seeing exactly how separated and the class divide that Irish people like to think isn't there, how it really does exist. And that, you know, the, that that community uh, is pushed to the fringes to a large extent. I had a guest on just the other week saying that the political establishment in Ireland doesn't care about uh, people around there because they simply don't vote. So they're not worth uh, spending time on. Exactly how uh, pushed to the fringes or on the outside were you aware of that community that you were in at the time? Yeah, um, I, I don't know if, if if it's changed a lot, but when we grew up, it uh, it was a, a very tight community, and 
you know, we, we would, would be out playing with all the kids uh, in the neighborhood. The school, St. Mark's Community School and St. Mark's Primary School had really good teachers and a really good headmaster and there was a lot of community activity that took place. You know, my mother, uh, it is impossible to get my mother out of the family house. She's been there for, for decades because she knows all the neighbors uh, mm. when she needed when she needs help she just goes into the next door and or, the, or, or up the road and everybody still looks after each other and it's a very tight community when my father died last year just about half the church with all of the neighbors in, in the region and so there's there's that very tight community that's still there and people that have grown up their entire lives in those houses and i still know at, at the funeral i saw people i hadn't seen in 30, 40 years that turned up that we were at school together with. So um, it's, it, I find that has a very tight sense of community. Everybody was brought up in the same way, with the same beliefs, and, and hopefully we all felt that we were all hardworking there. And the great thing about the Irish education system at the time was when free uh, tertiary education came in as well, and I never felt disadvantaged. Uh, going to to uh, uh, Dublin Institute of Technology, Kevin Street first, and then Trinity College. The only time I probably thought was a bit weird is when you went to Trinity College, you were asked your religion when you registered, because uh, uh, as you know, it was a Protestant university, and I think they had to get the balance back with Catholics, and so I probably helped get their quota of Catholics up at the time. But it was uh, it, it it felt very very much that it was even handed, and I've never felt disadvantage coming from Tel. Wow, I mean, I honestly wasn't expecting that answer, to be totally honest, because I guess there's a there's a reputation, there's probably that I've kind of fallen into in the assumption that I made in what you were going to say there. But that sounds like uh, when you were in St. Mark's Community School, that y you were absolutely zeroed in that third level was going to happen for you. But I'd, I'd still imagine that once you get there, that you aren't exactly uh, like the generation now who are kind of forced to pick what it is they want to do with their life at 17. But what was Alan Joyce obsessed with and thinking about at the time? And uh, I guess it was probably the golden age of Liverpool football clubs. You probably had that on yeah. your mind as well. I did. I was always a big Liverpool fan, but at 17, I was really into, into maths. I was pretty good at maths. And then picking a degree was uh, relatively easy. I did applied sciences, maths and physics. And that was something I always had an interest in. No understanding of what career that would be able to open up or the opportunities it would create, but just thought it was a good foundation of education. And to get that behind me, my, my, my younger brother, he did also applied science at TIT, uh, maths and physics, because he was really into maths as well. He's now an actuary based in Melbourne. So we both had this very strong interest in maths and played off each other um, on that. So it, that was always a direction I knew I wanted to go in. It was always a subject I was pr pretty interested in. And then that did open up the airline opportunities because after the primary degree, I did operations research at a branch of mathematics in Trinity College. And that was an amazing experience. That's building mathematical models for business problems. Mm. And literally, I, up till that time, I'd never flown. Um, we couldn't afford a holiday on an aircraft. We used to go to the Isle of Man or to Butlins. Uh, it was our holidays each year. And 
the only reason I applied for a job in Aer Lingus was because an operations research analyst came up on an ad in the Irish Times. Thought, oh, well, I have a degree, a master's degree in operations research. That's perfect. And just, impl- just applied for the airline with no interest in aviation. Never been on an aircraft, uh, never been up close to an aircraft and, and lucky enough to get the job in Aer Lingus. And I went from there. And a job in Aer Lingus was like a job in Guinness, right? At the, yes. Yeah, it, it was the holy grail. I mean, your mom and dad must have been so proud in the sense that uh, I don't, I'm, I'm not sure all of our listeners will get this, but at that time, if you got a job there, it was a job for life. It wasn't a question of, uh, sure, we'll see where I wind up in two years once I've garnered as much experience as I can. Were you hunkered down thinking, even though I've never been in a plane, this is me? Uh, it, it's it's fascinating because you're absolutely right. It was the gold standard at the time. Aer Lingus was one of the semi-state industries, but it had an angle to it and an edge to it that was very commercial and entrepreneurial, which uh, you think, you know, it, it created the leasing industry, essentially, which um, GPA leasing is how GCAS. It had its own IT company. It it set up airlines in Turkey and in, in in Spain, and it was really entrepreneurial, not like a state-owned business. And that was probably the thing that surprised me and actually engaged me. And and Erlingus was very good at developing its managers. So they gave you a different job every couple of years with opportunities. So I started in operations research. I got to see how a whole airline worked, then moved to uh, schedules planning, market planning, fleet planning, IT, uh, country manager for a while. So in the eight years I was there, there was an amazing experience of every aspect of an airline. It was the same eight years that Willie Walsh was there. You know, Tony Ryan had been there previous to us joining, and he set up, obviously, Ryanair and, and, and GPA leasing, their GCAS leasing. And uh, Conor McCarthy, he was my boss um, in Aer Lingus, and he went on to set up uh, Air Asia with Tony Fernandez. So the biggest low-cost carrier in Asia was a result of somebody that came from Aer Lingus. So, you know, it was an amazing foundation, amazing uh, time for development, an amazing track record around the globe in world aviation, what came from Aer Lingus at that stage. And it, it was a great experience to work there. There are amazing people that taught you quite a lot uh, uh, and I think sometimes it's underrated the contribution the Aer Lingus development programs gave to world aviation or, um, in the last 10, 20 years. A hundred percent. I mean, that's kind of why this this little tranche of Irishman abroad came about with the help of Declan Ryan to kind of recognize and identify that the Irish punch way above their weight in terms of this industry. But one of the questions I didn't ask Deck and that I thought I'd ask you is, you know, when you describe I was involved in this uh, kind of operations research analysis, you know, Matt's models to solve problems like uh, engines, cues, the, the very inner workings of what we understand as airline travel. Where is the, like, what is it that provides the buzz? Because obviously it's quite addictive. You mean, you said it got into your blood was how you described it in another interview. But for the listener like myself, who's in a completely different job, and for many people, they'd be like, well, what got in your blood? Like, how is it this attractive? And where do you get that kind of 
high that makes you want to continue and focus and be obsessed with it? Well, it's a unique industry because it's got um, a huge amount of complexity, which has its challenges, but also has its opportunities. When you think of it, well, you know, Qantas, as an example, carries around 58 billion people a year. And so it has a lot of consumer interfaces, contacts uh, with customers. It's hugely dependent on technology, whether it's the internet for bookings or telephones or GTSs for people making those transactions to checking in for an aircraft to aircraft themselves. I mean, there's a millions of moving parts mm. and complicated beasts. And the performance of the aircraft and the selection of the aircraft can make or break an airline, like the selection of the route network where you fly to, what times you, you operate can make or break an airline. And then there are some of the most iconic brands in the world. When you, you know, you think of a nation, you nearly think of their airline associated with mm -hmm. the kangaroo on Qantas, the shamrock on Aer Lingus, the ribbon on British Airways. I mean, these are the flag carriers by their history and by their nature. Um, and then when you think of the people you're employing, we employ over 32,000 in a massive amount of different professions from pilots to cabin crew to ITT specialists uh, to ground handlers to mechanical engineers uh, to, you know, every form of engineering. So you've got, you don't, I don't think there's another industry with that level of complexity, which creates challenges and opportunities because you can't. Therefore, as a manager, as a CEO, as a management team, make a big difference on the performance of the business with, uh, with managing that appropriately. So that's probably, and every day is different as a result. You get up something that you, you're thinking long term, like in the last week or so, we've been talking in, in, in Qantas about Project Sunrise, you know, these flights from Sydney nonstop to London to New York. They will be the world's longest flights. We, we narrow down to the A350. We're talking to our pilots about it. And this is something that's going to be with us potentially for 20 to 30 years. So the lead times are huge. But then at the same time, you're dealing with the industrial dispute that we have in Jetstar. And even on, on Sunday, when I was traveling back from Melbourne, we had an aircraft that had to do an evacuation because there was smoke in the cabin and the slides were deployed. So there's always something happening mm, in the industry. Yeah, drama. <laughs> and, and, and a long-term planning. I mean, you're having to deal with the issues of the day and simultaneously uh, make sure you devote time to, to plans and projects that are 20, 30 years down the line. Well, here's the thing, Alan. You, you stay with Aer Lingus for eight years, and that's 1988 to 1996, correct? Yes. So then the move to Australia comes. Now, I, like so many Irish fellas, have been there, <laughs> seen it. I know the attraction of the country. I remember landing and thinking, how has nobody told me anything about this place before? I felt like yeah. this was a secret my, my friends down there were keeping to themselves. It's an extremely attra attractive proposition, especially coming from a country as grey. Just weather-wise, <laughs> having the sun on your back is, is so, so appealing. But what was it about going there that caught you? I mean, it has to hook you, right? Because a lot of people go down and go, nah, I'm coming back. Yeah, it's there's a couple of things, I suppose. I, at one stage I found I was lucky enough to get a job in Aer Lingus 
and out of my degree and my master's degree, at one stage, I think I was the only person in the early 90s when Ireland was going through that recession, uh, one of the many recessions. I think I was the only one that actually got a job in Ireland and was in Ireland. Nearly all my friends and people I went to college with had gone overseas. And my brother uh, had worked overseas in, in, in Germany and in Korea and in, in New York uh, for a long time. And I, I was visiting them and France. And I thought I'd like the opportunity to work overseas for a while. And also, I mean, I think Ireland at the time wasn't a great place to be openly gay. And I'd never felt I could be gay, openly gay in Aer Lingus at the time. It, I remember uh, when I was in free planning, as an example, we, uh, we always took the aircraft, all the aircraft there on Christmas Day for the Bishop of Dublin to bless them. And you can imagine Ireland had uh, homosexuality was still illegal until 1996. Um, and so Australia always had this image of a place uh, where it was great to be openly gay, Mardi Gras, those images. And it was a place that gave me an opportunity to work overseas for a while. And I was uh, approached by a headhunter looking for somebody to do the planning areas in Hanset, that at the time the bigger competitor to Qantas. And so the job was there, the opportunity was there, the country was there. And so it all sort of clicked. And I said, I'll give this a go for a while and uh, it'll be a good experience living overseas. And, and then the same thing, like getting into aviation. You're right, when you experience Australia, you find that it's such an amazing place to live. And I've been lucky. I started living in Melbourne, uh, then I moved to Sydney. So I've lived in two amazing cities, both, I think, some of the best cities in the world to live in. Um, and that was a great experience that, that locked me in here. And then I met my partner, now my husband, in Melbourne a couple of years after I arrived. So, so the, 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 the roots were established pretty early. Well, you say about roots. I mean, one of the things that um, I think might be an anchor for you through all of this is the uh, mindfulness that you learned at Erlingus. Because as we're about to, you know, at some point in the conversation get to, you know, as I said at the start, the most tumultuous period in, in your life, you said that you didn't experience difficulty sleeping. You didn't have the stress that people might imagine as a result of mindfulness that you were trained in at Erlingus. And that kind of shocked me, Alan, because, you know, mindfulness is so cool and trendy now, but it, it, it wasn't exactly something that was on the curriculum at the time. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because I know so many of our listeners are, and myself, are really interested in that side of things. Yeah, it, it was probably ahead of its time. As I said, you know, this rotation of managers around was ahead of its time. And definitely in Aer Lingus too, we, we had gone through a very tough, stressful period with the recession of 92. Uh, that meant a major restructuring of Aer Lingus and people were put through a meditation and mindfulness courses uh, and it, always, it sort of from those early days it got me interested in it. And I felt that it was a great technique over the years to build on and to learn uh, like any skills are. And what that allowed you to do uh, was compartmentalize the focus on the issues. You know, when, when something needs focusing, whether sunrise, looking at something for 20 years and devoting your time and your energy to that, while you may have um, something else going on that's more immediate, uh, but, but having that ability to compartmentalize the focus 
uh, to, to pay attention to it. And when you're in meetings, to pay attention and ask the right questions and listen to people on issues that are being presented to you. And then when you go home, to switch off completely. And that annoyed the hell out of my, my partner at the time, my husband now, because Shane would ask me when I got back, he'd be reading stuff in the news, seeing stuff on the TV. And he said, do you want to talk about it? And I said, no, I don't. I'm, I'm actually want to watch TV, read the book, switch off. I'm being able to compartmentalize it and switch off. And was a very effective way of managing the stress and managing the issues and not letting it get too much. And that's the way I found it over the years. And anybody that, that does practice mindfulness will tell you that it makes a huge difference in how you can handle these things. I, I found the challenge with it was uh, getting my brain to stop, actually yeah. getting the, the yeah. monkey to stop rattling the cage. Do you struggle with that at all? Not really. Again, it takes, yeah, as you know, it's like anything with practice. Over time, I think you can you can get that calmness to, to appear to come there. I still at times have my eyes tempered, you know, and your brain goes and your energy levels goes. And I, I wouldn't say it's eyes tempered. I use that phrase, but it's more, it's more at uh, determination. Uh, mm. Maybe it's my mother with the fishmonger, you know, <laughs> that, that, that doggedness becomes part of what you do. Uh, but it actually probably is even more focused when that happens. Um, so I, I've never had a problem with that, and I think it's the only reason I can do the job I'm doing is that I, I, I think I can manage that quite well. Well, if that's the grounding in uh, mindfulness, you're grounding in Australia and understanding the Australian psyche, mentality, personality, the nationality, the diversity of the people. It obviously is born there at ANSET, that period there. And I, I don't want to overemphasize this because I think it's just kind of drawing uh, lines where they don't really exist. But let's face it, not all nationalities and countries are the same. I mean, we can say that you're moving from Ireland to Australia and you know, the people there just have a different approach to life, as I understand it. In my experience, kind of getting to know what they view as okay and what are their priorities in the day and how to address them in so many ways has been kind of, you know, the challenge for a lot of Irishmen and women abroad is assimilating to that new standard. What did, what were your and what do you continue to believe as the the similarities and differences between these two nations and why Irish people tend to do extremely well there? Yeah, it's it's I I think it it's the closest you can get to Ireland for with good weather, I think it's the way I've always viewed Australia. The people are very similar. Um there there's there is this friendly nature to individuals. There is obviously uh, the huge pub culture that's similar. Um, people like a drink here. They like to socialize. They, they like engaging um, in that way. People are sports crazy um, in Australia, particularly in Melbourne. When you're in Melbourne, I, I think you can get 100,000 people to turn up at the MCG to watch a fly crawl up the wall. So <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's very, uh, very sports orientated. Like our and particularly at Gael, uh, AFL, like the Irish are Gaelic football, and then there's always been around twenty twenty five percent of the population that weren't born in the country, 
and every gen, uh, you know, every generation has has Irish links nearly. And you talk to people here, some uh, some link back to Ireland, and people love going back to see that history. And of course, you know, it goes all the way back to the foundations of the country. Most of the convicts, I think, at the time were were Irish. And your true Australian blue blood, if you were a convict that came down on the first fleet or, or this first fleet, so it's part um, of, you know, this Larrikin society. And that Larrikin nature uh, that Australians have, I think, comes from the Irish. So, and the, and the Australians are probably the most accepting uh, race when it comes to, to meritocracy. You know, you think of it, uh, some of the big companies down here are not run by people that were born offshore. Uh, I, I run, obviously, the most iconic brand in Australia, an Irishman. Uh, running the banks here, we've had an American and a couple of Kiwis. Uh, we have Paul Sullivan, who ran Optus, the second largest telecom. Uh, he's from Ireland. Uh, we've had uh, American South Africans uh, running the biggest companies here. And there's no... There's no qualms with that. People accept that you're going to get the best talent to run uh, the companies or be senior leadership in the companies. And I look at my management team and I've got uh, Kiwis, I've got Brits, I've got, uh, I've got Americans that, uh, that, that are running Qantas. And again, that's accepted that you get the best talent from all over the globe. And people are rejoicing that, celebrate that, and want that uh, for their company. So it's it's that meritocracy, that Larrikin society, that similarity to Ireland, um, and those historical links to Ireland that I think allowed me uh, to, to flourish in a in a country that's very really accepting. Yeah, you know, you say that, but like at the same time, I found even in 2009 when I visited that you, there's there's an aspect to it that is probably similar in Ireland as well in that there's there's a certain amount of brutishness in the boorish behaviour and in terms of kind of, you know, toughen the fuck up kind of attitude that, uh, you know, I guess a lot of Irish people would share as well, that kind of lack of sympathy for or at least the sign that showing weakness is a is a bad thing. Um, I found that quite hard to handle at times, especially in terms of you know, kind of open and out there sexism. And homophobia. I, I, I didn't say it the second you said it, but you found it a lot more accepting to be gay in Australia, even at that time, pre-marriage equality. Well, there's no doubt, like probably in Ireland, that there are bubbles where people can live in them and find that things are really accepting. And, you know, I know, for example, that in corporate Australia, only 50% of LGBTI people are out in the workplace, even here, even in 2019. You know that the suicide rate of young gay males are five times the national average here, and therefore uh, the trans community 11 times the national average. So, so it's not easy for everybody. And I get some heart-wrenching emails from people. I had a, a young kid in New Zealand overhearing his, his father and his uncle saying when he came out to them that he's got no future, no career, and he's going to be destined for an unhappy life. And he, he read, read an article 
dad said that the CEO of Qantas was gay and that gave him hope. And he wrote me a really wow. nice letter um, saying how, how much of a difference that made and how he went to his father and his uncle and told them, well, I do have opportunities. I will have a life. And there are plenty examples of people like, like the CEO of Qantas that have done well. So it's, you know, my experiences, I've been lucky and I even, but even I've experienced a homophobic attack when we were supporting the marriage equality campaign. Uh, we had uh, this religious nut guy from Western Australia who was waiting behind the screen all morning before I gave a breakfast speech in front of, I think I was in front of six, 700 people. He came out from behind the stage. Uh, he had a pie that he pulled with force into my face. It, it was, we didn't know it at the time, but found out soon, soon later. It was because he opposed uh, my support and Qantas' support uh, for marriage equality, for LGBTI rights. Um, so it was, a whole, I was lucky enough, it was only a pie. It could have mm. been a lot worse. But that was a homophobic attack that did take place. So I don't want to give the impression that everything is, is smooth, everything is easy. It's just my experience has been accepting. My experience has been a great experience. Not everybody has the same experience. I wasn't going to bring up the pie, to be honest with you, Alan, because I wasn't sure what your memory of it might be. And also, you don't want to give more publicity to, to that kind of thing. But I'd imagine that was bloody terrifying at the time. It was it was weird because um, again you get into problem solving mode because I didn't see him come come up to the side and he essentially put his hand on the shoulder and put the pie straight into the face hmm. and then he walked straight off. So all I did, looking off, I was wearing glasses, so I took my glass glasses off and I could see him walking away. And I looked at the audience who were in shock, and then I said, I don't know what that was all about, but give me. I just started the speech, but give me a few minutes to tidy up and I'll come back. And what was amazing about that, so I had to clean the, the stuff off, the, the jacket and, and, the, and the shirt, and uh, came back in, gave the speech, and there was this rousing uh, uh, applause that came from the audience, which I think was rejecting what he had just done. And, um, and it was very uplifting. And then I was doing a Q&A on stage, and the journalist that was interviewing me, it was the first time it dawned on me that could have been something related to marriage equality because he asked the question, do you think this was due to that? And I said, oh, why would you ask that? And then we found out a bit later that that was, that was the case. Uh, the funny thing is, uh, Kerry Stokes, who was Channel 7, and who's a billionaire down here who owns the, uh, the company that was doing the event, he immediately rang me and apologized because it was their event. And, and he said, oh, Alan, that's not Australia. This is a well-known Australia. That's not Australia. I don't regard that as Australia because we're all mortified that that happened to you on stage. Mm. But it shows you the quir quirky sense of humor. Because when I got back to Sydney, that was in Perth. When I got back to Sydney that night um, at the reception of the apartment block I live in, uh, there was a pie from Kerry Stokes saying, you didn't get to taste the last <laughs> one. I was just throwing it in your face. I've given you a good Western Australian pie for you to celebrate tonight. So the Australians have a quirky sense of humor as well. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, like, I, I won't dwell on it any further because I guess the, the other side of that story is the the instinct to come back and you know another person goes well 
that's that done, I'm out of here. I mean, this is a wash. There's obviously something in you that doesn't, that switch's not there. Would you agree, Alan? There's there's another person that sees the losses at Qantas and goes, lads, I'm out of here. Would you agree with that? I, I think there's a lot of people that would have the determination to see it through. And I think I, I've never been, and and I don't think anybody in my family has been ever somebody that would give up. And I would hate to give up on anything. And you, you still, and I've found that from some of the mentors over the years, some of the bosses I've had, where I could see their determination. When I've thought there was a lost cause, when them keep on going on it, and they can make all the difference if you have somebody with that willpower, with that determination to make things happen. And I suppose it taught me a lesson to never give up, never wave the white flag, uh, never relent. And, um, and that's worked really well for me over the career. So I think these things are are micro examples of that because every day you have to have the to live your life that way. Every day you have to make sure that you are pushing through, that you're pushing things forward, and you're determined to make things happen. I think that's why people are given these jobs. I always said that. You know, it would have been easier for me to kick the can down the street, but that's not what the leadership of Qantas, the leadership of any organization, the leadership of any government should be doing. They should be trying to fix the problems and leaving uh, the company, the country in a better position than when they inherited it. So you inherited these problems, essentially. So if we're going to get into this, as I said, the headline of your business life, uh, do you remember a moment or a time when it was made clear to you the extent of what you were dealing with in terms of the hemorrhaging of cash, the kind of rag order <laughs> of Qantas at the time. Do you remember that kind of dawning on you and maybe any kind of period or time, a significant period when you realized hard decisions are going to need to be made here? And I, it's it's up to me to make them. Yeah, it it it, it happened over a period of time because there was all series of events where we sort of had to deal with that that were significant at the time. Like I took over in two thousand eight, and the global financial crisis was just hitting. And overnight, we lost a billion dollars in revenue because uh, people were not traveling in business class or, or first class. And the whole aviation market took a massive hit worldwide. We also had, unfortunately at the time, a very, very big order of aircraft coming that were renewing the fleet. So you had the combination of the money wasn't coming in the door mm. and you had this huge expenditure. So the first year or two was really shoring up the finances to to delay some aircraft we couldn't afford and to stop the complete bleeding of cash that was coming out so we could get through that period. And then, if you remember, um, we had in 2010 an engine blowing up on an A380. It was the QF32 incident where the engine had a design flaw from Rolls-Royce and it was taking off from Singapore. And Qantas has this amazing safety record it's never lost a jet aircraft and that was the closest we ever got to losing an aircraft the engine shrapnel from the engine 
uh, went through the aircraft, cost over $100 million worth of damage. The aircraft was lucky it landed. We had five amazing pilots in the cockpit, a checking training captain and a checking training captain for the checking training captain. It was a unique combination of pilots and a very amazing pilot, Richard DeCrepney, who got the aircraft on the ground. And because we regarded the aircraft as unsafe, we were the only airline that grounded them. And I had to do the press conference, which grounded the aircraft. They were grounded for 23 days while Rolls-Royce discovered what the problem was. And we didn't put them back in the air until then. So we were doing press conferences every day for the 23 days, explaining that to people. And so that was probably the big, uh, big focus in 10, which was maybe a bit of a, a distraction, but mm. it, it, it soaked up all of the energy of the organization. And then in 11 is when the industrial action started occurring. And we had three unions that coordinated the ground handlers, the people that put bags and load the aircraft, the maintenance engineers who, who look at the, and fix the aircraft and the pilots. And then that started escalating over a period of time. And it became, it became unsustainable for us because we were getting people calling a dispute. So they would say, next Friday, give you 72 hours notice. We're not going to have any flights for five hours and not any, any workers turn up for five hours. So we cancel all the flights. And then uh, once the flights are canceled 24 hours out, the union would call off the action and we would end up having to pay the people, even though there was no work to be done. Uh, so this was continuing, and every week our revenue was getting worse and worse, and I think it, was going, it ended up costing us $20 million a week, and we felt we had no alternative but to take the only action we could. So we could have either agreed to the union demands, which I think would have bankrupted the quantums. Uh, we could have continued in this slow bake, as one of the union leaders was calling it, or take the action we were allowed under the law, which is to lock out the staff involved in the dispute. And when we made that decision to lock them out, which was on a Saturday morning after our AGM, I got up and I felt like we were not going to uh, resolve this issue in any other way. And we called an emergency board meeting, made the decision at the board. The chairman, Lee Clifford, was an amazing chairman at the time. and. He asked, he said, it's Alan's call, it's Alan's decision, but we need, he needs to know what behind him. So he did a roll call of the entire board and it was unanimous to ground the airline and to lock the staff out. And we did it that Saturday. We, uh, I ran, I tried to ring the prime minister to tell her that we were doing it. Uh, we told him some of her, um, her, her deputies. They weren't very happy. They're Labour Party at the time. They're associated with the union. Uh, they weren't very happy. There was also a, a, a government meeting taking place in Western Australia at the same time, but we felt that there was no other alternative. So we grounded the airline. I think the guys at the up center put all the aircraft on the ground within seven minutes. And we went into arbitration that weekend and we essentially won the cases. And Every single one of the cases found on Qantas aside, uh, the airline was able to put back uh, in the air on the Monday, um, and we we got flying on that Monday afternoon. So it was a very tough period, but it showed that we were determined not to give in to the unions. It showed that we were determined uh, that we were going to transform and change Qantas and, uh, and it worked for us. Because then in 2013, when a perfect storm happened against Qantas, we're all all prices being record highs, the Aussie dollar being our record high, 
capacity domestically, internationally, from our competitors hitting us across the board. When we lost $2.8 billion, we were able to implement a massive transformation program uh, that improved the performance of the business so that within two years, we were making half a billion again. Within three years, we were over a billion. And now for the last four or five years, we've made over a billion dollars each year, nearly record profits every year with great returns to the shareholders, uh, big bonuses to our employees, and big investment for our customers in new aircraft, and new lounges, and new seats, and free Wi-Fi on aircraft. So everybody's benefited out of transformed quantums. Uh, and I was tough for those few years from 11, 12, and 13. It took a concerted effort by a huge team. And, you know, people were coming up with, with project ideas that were a million dollars each. We added up to two billion. There were over two hundred projects, and that that was the uh, the changing uh, the, the change periods that turned us from a failing airline to a very successful airline within the space of a couple of years. Well, you know, and you say a mouthful there, right? Because first of all, the two questions that really I really wanted to ask you have kind of been captured in that answer there, and the depth of the answer. Yep. That like, you say a transformation program and, you know, you say there's 200 aspects to that uh, amounting to this huge figure. And within that is a lot of decisions that I guess run counter to your own childhood, as we've discussed, you know, with your father working three jobs, your mother working as a cleaner, you're affecting the lives of people in similar situations who had to bite the bullet because of the calls that you were making in respect of the board and the shareholders. Did you wrestle at all with that and the kind of the human impact of what were on paper good decisions, but ultimately going to result in a certain amount of heartache for the really small guy. Yeah, it, it, that was tough because we had to make 5,000 people redundant out of the 32,000 we employed at the time. So it, it, it was a significant human impact. But what, what reinforced to me was the right thing to do was probably my time at Ansett because Ansett uh, was a great airline with a great brand and it, it employed 10,000 of 10,000 people. And because they didn't make the hard decisions, because it was mismanaged, I think, for a period of time, because it was in analysis paralysis, people were not making, willing to make the calls. It went bankrupt in 2001 mm. and everybody lost their jobs. So to me, it was always, um, is it going to make Qantas more sustainable and the 20 seven twenty eight thousand jobs we had left mm. was this going to make sure that they were protected and those people um, and their families had something to look forward to and that turned out to be the case so not only uh, were we able to save all of those jobs but we were also able to build on them and we're back now well over thirty thousand employees we recruit were recruiting this year another uh, thousand pilots and cabin crew we set up our own pilot training school which is going to train 500 people uh, we've employed um, a lot of people across a lot of different professions as a consequence of being a successful company 
And, you know, when we were making people redundant, I did go around to the different areas and it was some of the most emotional times I've had in the job. For example, I went to the call centre in Melbourne. We had three call centres around the country, but because of, uh, because of old technology, uh, you needed one nearly in every state in Australia. Uh, with new technology and people doing everything on the internet, we didn't need those three call centres. And we decided to close two of them down because the work just wasn't there. And I went to the one in Melbourne, and it was the most amazing group of people, a couple of hundred people. What we worked on was giving them training and outsourcing so they could get jobs in other um, companies. Uh, we had work days and work fairs for them, and a lot of them got other jobs pretty fast. Um, some of them moved states. We offered them jobs in other different states and different roles. But the most amazing thing for me is everybody that decided to leave, uh, they were in tears on that last day, very emotional about the company, very emotional about its future, and very understanding of the tough decisions that need to be made. And I was in tears along with those staff because uh, it was an emotional thing, but it was completely accepted by them. They knew we had to do it. And and they just had the utmost respect and the utmost interest in Qantas surviving. And that was their number one objective. And we did everything we could to try and help them find other jobs. Tell me a little bit about your brush with cancer, your examination at a time when, you know, you didn't think, sure, I won't get my prostate checked until I'm a little bit older, which is, again, the attitude of a lot of men. And then you discovered something terrible. I mean, that has to be, outside of everything we've discussed here, that that has to be a moment in your life that is game-changing for you. I mean, a lot of people kind of blustering through, doing their best to do what they can, and in a job similar to you, so zeroed in and focused, your health kind of tends to go to one side. Talk to us a little bit about that moment and how that came about and what exactly that did in terms of changing you. So there was probably a whole series of lucky coincidences that saved my life and, and helped uh, me get through it. Uh, the first thing is that we had a CFO in Qantas. He was going through some ill health at the time and he taught, we taught, it was stress-related because of that global financial crisis meltdown when we were doing all the refinancing. Mm. That was the build-up to 2010. And he's a very thick guy. He was, uh, you know, a very active swimmer. I think he actually swam in the Olympics or tried to try out for the Olympics. And he was coming out of it. He left under a package from Qantas because of that ill health. And he was coming out of the surf one day and he collapsed went into the hospital, did a series of tests and found they had a hyperactive thyroid that was induced by uh, taking the soya milk that had to be impacted by iodine, uh, which turns out there was a class action against the years later. But then I said when we found that out, well, we could have discovered that in one of the um, health checks that we did it for the executives and one year we killed that because of a cost-cutting program. And I said, well, that wasn't very smart because that cost us uh, that very strong and, and and very powerful executive that had to go for real health. So let's put it back in and I'll be the first to do it. And that was in 2011 when I was 45, uh, which weren't recommended doing the tests, as you said, until you were 50. So went in, did the test. The PSA was 
very elevated such such an extent the doctor said we want to do a biopsy straight away and for a lot of people that have the biopsy on the prostate you can have a wait and see but for me it, it was a very aggressive form of the cancer in the prostate and he said i want to immediately bring you back in and take the prostate out there's not really any decision so he explained the science to me explained the maths to me and uh, when they took the prostate out later, when they did the, the dissection of it, he said there was like an 85% chance I would have been dead by the time I was 50. And um, so I was very lucky with that series of events. Uh, it was it was all happening at the same time that industrial relations was happening. So it, it w- what was interesting, because the, the focus on the industrial relations, really, when I look back in hindsight, meant I didn't have much time to think about the significance of the cancer and the significance of what it meant. It just was, again, like that problem solving. It's just something to get through, something to get out of the way uh, so I could get on and do the job, which was in a very intense time. Mm. And, and that's sort of the way it worked. So I look back on it and it seems like the bigger issue in 2011 was the industrial relations and the cancer was just like a secondary minor issue that we just got through. You know, I guess the like there's so much, Alan, that we 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 could get to here, but there's kind of there's kind of one big side of this, like the 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 multifaceted nature of it, the stress involved in what you've been doing for so long, as you say, thirty thousand plus staff, all these operations. I get overwhelmed when I've got three things to do in the day. Is overwhelm something that just doesn't seem to affect you, or do you suffer under that? No, I think I, I'm I'm very. <laughs> if I did, I probably wouldn't be doing this job for eleven years because I I enjoy getting up every day. I enjoy reading first thing in the morning. I, I usually get up at five o'clock. I'm still trained into my mother when she worked. Uh, a couple of jobs. Uh, one of them was as a, a cleaner at the talent uh, swimming pool. And she had to get us up at five o'clock each morning. And so she had to go and clean the pool before um, everybody arrived. And still to this day, I get up at five, near about 4.30 to five o'clock, read a few emails, see what's happening for the day. It's sort of built in. And it's, it's fascinating. Every day, I find it exciting. There's something new that's going to happen, something you probably didn't expect. And there's some uh, very interesting things that happen. And it particularly, you know, in the, in the last few years, there was the tough period of restructuring the business. 11, 12, 13 wasn't pleasant. There were a lot of um, tough decisions, tough like, announcements and tough things to, to manage our way through. But in the, in the last few years, there's been a huge amount of positives. The Project Sunrise test flights, new lounges, new seats on the aircraft, new routes that we've been operating. And so there's a huge amount of positive stuff that you're doing, which is, uh, which is growth, which is investment and making announcements of staff bonuses, making announcements on what we're doing for shareholders returns. And so, so that gets you up every day and that gets you motivated. And I'd have to say it's probably been, been the last few years have been some of the best years uh, that I've had in Qantas. And, and that's quite exciting. And I think the next few years will be similarly very exciting. Well, so if that doesn't bother you, then what does? I mean, we all have something that 
upsets us or gets to us. Uh, I, I had two questions that I really wanted to ask. Uh, one was about a story I read of, you know, you've been called names in the street during the lowest moments of all of this, that uh, a man calling you a bastard in the street and nearly setting his dogs on you. I, I don't know if I've got that correct, but like, surely there's there's something that upsets you, Alan. Like, uh, we all uh, could do our own employee appraisal. And I always say that, you know, that's what I recommend to other comedians do that like pretend you have the greatest manager ever and uh, do your own appraisal because you'll find the answers to a lot of your problems in, in that. What would be your employee appraisal of yourself? And what are the things that you struggle with in terms of managing your own emotions or even just the things that you beat yourself up about during the days and weeks yeah I, I think like every everybody you always if you make a mistake or or something doesn't go as planned i think you you try to you try to improve on it each time and there's you know there's plenty of things over the years that we've tried that haven't worked you know what are its strategies of setting up airlines in asia that have been very frustrating and cost a lot of money and you figured out, well, could we? And I always like was looking back, not not as a witch hunt, not as a as trying to figure out um, who's responsible, because I think we we as a team, when we make decisions like that, are all responsible for figuring out can you learn from them and can you do some things differently. And the the honest reflection of looking back and saying, yeah, we we were too naive on this, we screwed up on that. I think is really good. And every challenging moment is an opportunity to learn. And every challenging moment has its funny sides. Like that dog issue that you talked about. I was actually live on TV no when that way. happened. And so I had an earpiece we were doing in a park, pretty close to where I live, because they can get a signal. We were doing every major TV station's breakfast TV. And it's some of the biggest audience of the day. So I was switching between Channel 7 and Channel 9 and had an earpiece in, I think it was Channel, Channel 7 we were talking to, and this guy was walking his dogs through the park, and it was at the time we were announcing the $2 billion program, the 5,000 redundancies, and he said, um, he said, Joyce, you bastards, yeah, you're making all these people redundant, and he let his dogs go, which were two Jack Russells. <laughs> okay. and, and I was a paper, paper boy back in Tala, and absolutely the Jack Russells are the worst dogs. <laughs> they always would bite your ankles. The Irish Wolfhounds and the German Shepherds were fine. Fantastic dogs for Jack Russells. I hate with a passion. <laughs> and these two literally came straight to me. And down the TV at the time, the guys on, on Sunrise, the TV program, were saying, we did a poll this morning. And 95% of people say you should resign as dogs were biting my ankles and this guy was calling me a bastard. <laughs> and then I said, that was when he, I gave the answer to the previous question you said. I said, well, I'm not a politician. It's not a popularity contest. <laughs> and at that moment of time, I didn't think it was one <laughs> But it, it's, a, it's a funny moment. And, um, and you, you remember those moments, even though I suppose at the time you think, why the heck am I doing this job? And you learn, you learn from them. 
big part of the Deck Ryan uh, interview was about management style. And uh, one listener here really wanted me to ask you about how you describe your own management style and who were the managers in history, either in sports, business or otherwise, that you draw inspiration from. I know Deck himself gave me a Brian Clough book after the interview to, uh, I guess, kind of show me one of his biggest influences. Well, one, one, my style, I think, is, is getting a really good team and a diverse team and having an inclusive environment where people can challenge you, people can have a debate and people uh, can change minds. And I think we try and go in a lot of cases for very humble managers because people that are humble are usually very curious. They ask lots of questions mm -hmm. and they're open for persuasion. They're open for if they, if they have, they think they have an answer, but evidence is put to them that that answer isn't right to change their mind. And probably part of my upbringing with being a physicist and a mathematician, you usually start with a hypothesis and you're dependent on people either proving or disproving it with information. You want people uh, to put different viewpoints. And we have amazing debates, amazing discussions at the board, at the management team. And I think it's one of the biggest things that Quant Quant is true. It's challenging times. And you have to be willing to have people that are super bright, super capable, a lot better than you surrounding you, because that makes it a very effective team. And when, when I look back on it, I mean, he, he might put for Brian Clough, but I look at the Liverpool teams um, all the way through the 80s and 90s uh, with that consistency of that team, even in the management. And, you know, the, the Paisleys, the Shankleys, mm -hmm. the, all of them, where it was the baton was handed on from manager to manager. And, you know, the second in charge usually got the managership and that method and that success just kept them flowing. And I hope that's what we have in Qantas, that as the baton has changed and the, the, the new management come up, uh, that that success continues um, and it's not dependent on one leader. And I think they built a system of management that I found immensely successful and Im immensely impressive. You know, you mentioned about the higher goals there, and that is a Jurgen Klopp thing that, you know, this isn't about us that this is about more, it's about more, it, this means more, uh, the idea that our time here is fleeting and, the, you know, what we leave behind is what matters, as you say, passing the baton. It all kind of hints to or reaches to a higher goal or at least a metaphysical understanding that there is more than us in the world. Uh, and that we don't understand absolutely everything through the limited senses we have. Do you have any sort of belief that way or uh, in terms of spirituality? Where do you stand on that? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm a believer in that you, you should have a higher morality. I'm not a religious, I have to admit, but I think you... There are, there is a right and a wrong, and it's it's very important that we all live our lives and contribute something to society and community. Probably one of the reasons why I'm very passionate about Qantas because I think in its 100 years, I look at what it's done for the community in Australia and what it's delivered on, and, and what the leadership has delivered on, and what its people deliver on, 
and you'd say, you know, that that's worthwhile. Um, companies aren't there to make profits ex- exclusively at the expense of everything else. They're there to serve a community, to represent the community. And I hope what we've been doing um, over the last few years has demonstrated that the work on marriage equality, the work on Indigenous rights, the work on um, gender equality, uh, the work that we do in the communities today. You know, we've got bushfires all over Australia and the airlines flying two and a half thousand people, 50 charter flights to help those communities. We had the strawberry farmers a couple of years ago that, that had pins in the strawberries and somebody in Qantas decided to buy a couple of tons of strawberries to help help them out. So there's that morality if you're in a business and businesses have bad reputations today, mm. uh, but it, Businesses can do a lot of good, do a lot of good. And, and I think if, if the management, the people in it have that sense of community, that sense of morality, they'll always try and do the right thing and do the positive thing. And I hope that's what our company does and what we do, what I try and do in my daily life. Massive thanks to Alan Joyce for doing this episode and really giving us so much in terms of his life and his life story of growing up in Tala and everything that he's faced over the years. This, of course, was recorded pre-pandemic, in case you couldn't tell. And in the next few episodes of our series, we will navigate a few different angles, a few different stories in terms of the aviation business and Irish people and their place in it through this very difficult two-year period. And my hope is that they'll serve as some sort of time capsule as to how they navigated those dangerous straits and how uh, cool heads prevailed throughout it all. Join me for the third episode of The Flying Irishman. Subscribe to and leave a review of The Flying Irishman on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Music on this episode is courtesy of Epidemic Sounds. Sound production, editing, and research by Jarlick Regan. Special thanks to Declan Ryan and Ellen James. Flying Irishman is an Irishman Abroad podcast.